Let me remind you that next Sunday is Easter, and our service times are changed for Easter. We have just one service, so we won't have this hour, the Discovering God hour, but just our Easter worship service, and that will be at 11 o'clock. 10.30, we will have cafe community, so we'll have the coffee and bagels, and then our worship service at 11 to noon, and that, that'll be it for Easter Sunday morning. So not, nothing at 9.30, uh, so you can sleep in a bit, but 11 o'clock is our worship service next week. What have we been looking at in this hour? Last week, we began just a, a couple of week series, so two, two parts, on looking at verses in Scripture that are commonly misused. They're quoted, but quoted out of context. And we looked at five of them, five of the most often misused verses in, in Scripture. And we're going to look at a few more today. Now, why do we do that? I explained last week that the reason I wanted to take a few weeks to do that is because, one, we are a Bible church. The name of our church is Community Bible. And our motto is uh, the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. So if we're going to be a Bible church and we're going to be established and built up on the foundation of the Word of God, then we've got to be people of the book. We've got to be people who know the book, and then when we quote it, we want to quote it accurately, and we want to quote it within context. We don't want to be guilty of misusing Scripture. And yet, there are a number of passages that are so often quoted, and we have heard them over the years, that we may not have taken time to look at the context in which those verses occur and whether or not we're really quoting them accurately. And so we looked at a number of those last, last week. And we... Because we want to use the Bible correctly, we want to handle it properly, it means that we have to interpret it and then in turn apply it in an appropriate way. Now, that interpreting it the right way is so important that we spend uh, time in two of our classes, two of our core community institute classes, going through rules of interpretation. The class that I'm doing right now on Wednesday evenings is called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. It's the first of our core classes in Community Institute. If you've never taken that or you don't know what Community Institute is, then you can check at the information desk. But uh, that will run just for a few more weeks, and then we'll start it up again in, in the fall. And every fall, we start up these core classes so that everybody who's come into our church has an opportunity to take these foundational courses. One of those is how to get the most out of your Bible. And in that, we teach principles of interpretation. We do it again in uh, the next core class, which is called Master Plan for Life. So that's how important that is. And I'm just going to briefly, for the benefit of uh, those who have not taken those classes uh, or who have taken them but have forgotten, I want to just go through the, the four uh, primary rules that we give there for interpretation for us to make a proper interpretation of any Bible verse. Uh, The first one is this. A text cannot mean what it never meant. A passage of the Bible, a text, cannot mean now what it never meant when it was first written. Now, that's important because many people uh, have the idea that a passage can mean something to you or mean something to me, and it can mean something different to you than it means to me. Now, a passage can apply to you differently than it applies to me, but it can't mean something different. The passage only means what it meant, 
And it meant, as we're going to see, one thing. And so a passage cannot, as its meaning, mean something today that it did not mean when it was originally written. So our task when we read and study the Bible is to get to the author's intended meaning. The one who wrote it intended to convey something, and we want to know what he intended to convey to those who first received it, the intended meaning. And that intended meaning is what that passage then meant, and it's also what it still means. Then we have to apply it, and that's another set of principles that that we have to use. So bear in mind that first principle, uh, crucial principle of interpretation, a text cannot mean what what it never meant. And then a second one is this, that all texts are not alike. All passages in the Bible are not alike. There are different kinds of books in the Bible that are different kinds of literature. And different kinds of literature are interpreted differently because they're intended to be interpreted differently. So we saw last week, if you were here, some passages out of the book of Proverbs. One of those was Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, that is a proverb in the book of Proverbs. And that kind of literature, proverbial literature, is to be interpreted a particular way, not as a legal guarantee, but as a general truth. That's the nature of a proverb. If you take it as a legal guarantee, now you're really going to be messed up in your, your parenting, and especially if you've had the pain of a, a child going, going wayward. So different kinds of literature in the Bible, and the Bible is made up of a bunch of different kinds, are to be interpreted according to the type of literature it is. Parables are to be interpreted a particular way. Uh, The law that was given to Israel is just that, and it's to be interpreted in light of the fact that it's a law given to a nation that God had chosen to carry out His his work at that time. So you have law books in the Bible, you you have parables, you have proverbs, you have poetry, you have apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is like the book of Revelation. And uh, some of the, the book of Daniel, it has symbols in it, and those symbols represent other things, uh, and, and particularly focused on the end times. So that's a different kind of book yet. So a number of different kinds of literature, and they all need to be interpreted according to their, their kind. Now, two-thirds of the Bible is narrative, two-thirds. Fully two-thirds of the Bible is narrating what happened to other people. It's a narrator, the, the writer, narrating the story of what happened to these people. So it's, it's narrative, which means that it is not written directly to you. Now notice the word directly. It's written to you, it's written to me, but not directly to you and me. Because it's about them and what happened to them. Indirectly, we see principles in what happened to them about what human beings are like and how sinful and stupid we are. You see that over and over again. And then you see principles in those stories as to what God is like. And God has not changed. And because God has not changed, now I can apply those stories and the principles I glean from them to myself. We've been doing that on Sunday mornings at 9.30 as we look at profiles, portraits of grace, But we've been looking at narrative passages of Scripture about guys like Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah. These are all things that happened to them, but we've gleaned principles about God and about ourselves based upon those those stories. But here's one of the key things about then narrative 
portions of the Bible. They describe things that happened to people. Describe to. They describe things that happened to people. But they do not prescribe things for us. They describe what happened to those people. But they don't prescribe those same things to us. So as you go through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, much of it's narrating what happened to Moses and David and Elijah and Abraham and um, all of the characters there. So it's narrating what happened to them, and surely none of us think that those same things are supposed to happen to us. David has a battle with Goliath. You're not, lo- you're not looking for that, right? David recaptures the Ark of the Covenant through victorious battle, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. We don't, you know, we're still raiders of the lost Ark. The, lo- the Ark's lost, okay? We don't, we don't know where it is, so you won't be doing that anytime soon either, Okay? So it's describing all these things that happen to them. It's not prescribing stuff that happens, is supposed to happen uh, for us. But still, I get major principles about God and about myself out of reading those stories. You know, when the ark was recaptured, according to 2 Samuel chapter 6, God had given very explicit instructions about how it was to be brought back to Jerusalem. So holy was this, this box upon which was the golden, gold lid that was the mercy seat. And it was to be placed in the holiest of holy places in the uh, tabernacle and later the temple uh, uh, to where God would meet with the, the high priest. So this, this box represented God. And God said it has to be handled in a very special way. You can't, you can't touch it. It has to have holes in it with poles that go through it, and you can only touch the poles, Okay. And as they transport it back to Jerusalem, they made a special cart for it, Second Samuel 6 says. And as they were bringing it back, the cart became unsteady. And the Bible tells us that a man named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark. And he touched the ark. And Uzzah is killed summarily. You go, yikes, I'm just trying to help out, Right? Now, you know, you won't be studying the ark anytime soon, as I said, but what can you learn in that story about God? God's holy. God's absolutely holy. God's absolutely sovereign. God doesn't need my help. Do what he says and let him deal with the results. Do what he says, even if it looks like the results aren't going to be what you want, and you may think they're not results that he wants. Still do what he says. And leave the consequences to him. Well, that's a, that's a message I need to know. That's a message you need to know, isn't it? And I learned that from that story, but it's describing what happened to other people, not prescribing what I'm supposed to do. No ark, no bringing it back to Jerusalem, all of that. Now, this becomes a really important deal then when you come to the New Testament and you have narrative portions of Scripture, like the book of Acts. 28 chapters of narrating what happened to the apostles. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. And it says what happened to them. So Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple. And it says there they they met a a man who was lame, couldn't walk, and uh, he's begging them for, for money. 
And you remember they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise and walk. And, and this guy's healed. Well, you won't be doing any, either of those things anytime soon. You won't be going to Jerusalem, and you won't be telling a guy to get up and walk. But if you, if you make the mistake of thinking everything that's described is also prescribed, then you'll look at what Peter and John did and said, I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to have the ability to tell people, get up and walk. And it's a narrative portion. It's describing what happened to them. Turns out they're pretty special guys. They've got pretty special powers you don't have. And I don't have. Now, I won't prove that to you. I'll prove, I prove that in our midweek class at Community Institute. That's my last plug for that. Okay. But if you, if you make the mistake of thinking everything that is written about them is also prescribed for me, then you will seek to emulate everything they do, and you'll do that erroneously. So here's the way some have put it, and I think it's helpful. All the Bible is written for me and you, but not all of the Bible is written to me and you. It's all written for us, but it's not all written to us. It's written, first of all, to some other people and about some other people, but it's all for us. Every bit of it, I glean principles from it about God, about myself, about others, about His purposes in the world. And that's why Scripture can say in the New Testament, even though two-thirds of it's a narrative written to and about other people, it can still say, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. All Scripture is useful, but it's to be used useful in a different way. So all Scripture is written for us, but not all Scripture is written, is written to us. So you've got these rules of interpretation. A text cannot mean what it never meant. All texts are, are not alike. And then here's the third one, and that is that a text, a passage of Scripture, has only one meaning. A passage has only one meaning. Many applications, one meaning. And what you and I want to do when we look at a passage of Scripture is get that one meaning. What did it mean to them when it was written in its context? We want to see what the words mean in the context of the sentence. We want to see what the sentence means in the context of the paragraph. We want to see what the paragraph means in the context of the book in which it's contained. And then ultimately, we want to see what it means in light of the entire Bible, God's message to us. So we want to place it in its, its context from the smallest grammatical unit, a word contained within a sentence, contained within a paragraph, contained within a book, which is contained within the entire Bible. But the text has only one meaning. So, on Sunday evenings, starting up two weeks from tonight, we will resume our home groups. We call them community groups. And uh, those meet in homes, and uh, we discuss in those meetings application of the passage of Scripture that was preached the week prior. We have four or five discussion questions that we look at. How can we apply this to, to our lives? Now, here's what we don't do. And maybe some of you have been involved in groups where this happens. You have 8 or 10 or 12 people, and they sit around in a circle, and they read a passage of Scripture. And then you go around the room, and the question is, what does that mean to you? And I don't think that's ever happened in our church. If it ever does happen, please let me know, okay? Because, and I, I'm not trying to be unkind, but in all seriousness, 
it really doesn't matter what it means to me or what it means to you. The question is, what did it mean when it was written? And now we want to know how does it apply to me and how does it apply to you? So having gotten, hopefully, the meaning, the one meaning, the original meaning, uh, putting it in its original context, the text, the passage has only one meaning, and now we get together to apply it. Now, that's three principles of interpretation. Those three principles of interpretation, I say in our Community Institute classes, applies really to any communication. That in order to communicate with someone, or for them to communicate with you, you have to be trying to decipher what do they intend to communicate. So I want to get the author's or the speaker's intended meaning. That's what you're trying to get right now, I hope. If you're still awake, you're trying to get my intended meaning when I, when I speak. And you can do that fairly quickly because the words I use are familiar to you. Even if I use illustrations, they're probably not foreign to most of you because we live at the same time and in the same place, and so they're familiar to us. Uh, so all of, that, all, all of those three rules apply to reading the newspaper, actually. They apply to any communication you hear or read. But there's a fourth and final one that is special to the Bible. And it does not apply to every other communication that you have. And it's this. When we interpret the Bible, remember, it has complete unity. When we interpret the Bible, the Bible communicates a unified message. Now, how's that different from other stuff you read in here? Here's how. The Bible has 66 books by 40 different authors written over a 1600 year period. It has uh, 1,189 chapters in it. It's a big and diverse book. And you take that kind of antiquity and that kind of diversity, what are the chances you're going to get a unified message out of that? Yikes. You get five people in a room right now, throw out a topic, ask them what do you think about this, and you'll get five, maybe 50 different views, right? So what are the chances you're going to get a unified message out of that? The only way that's going to happen is if, despite the fact that there are 40 different human authors recording God's message, behind all of that is one ultimate author, God. And that is how the Bible has unity. Now, how does that affect our interpretation of the Bible? Here's how. A Bible Bible passage cannot mean one thing here and a contradictory thing there. If the Bible says that when you have a relationship with God, that you have that relationship from that point and forever. If it teaches that, then there cannot be a Bible verse someplace else that says you can have it and then not have it. And so those who would teach, you can lose your salvation. You guys know what I'm talking about? And there are people who teach that. If the Bible teaches that when you have a relationship with God, that that lasts forever, if it teaches that, and it does, then it can't also at the same time teach you can have it and then not have it. There may be verses that look like that that you'll have to study closer. But it can't mean that because ultimately it has one author and it does not contradict itself. It has a a unified message. If we have time today, we'll look at one such passage that uh, some use in a contradictory way. Okay? Everybody good? So why do we want to do this? Because we're a Bible church, because we're Bible people, because we're people of the book, because our motto is the family of God built on the Word of God. 
So if we're going to use the Bible as the foundation for our church and for our lives, then we've got to know what it means, and we've got to quote it accurately, and we've got to apply it accurately. And that means we need to use proper principles of interpretation. And then when we throw verses out there, they have to be used in context. So let me give you a few more verses that are sometimes misused. One is Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29. And this is one of these many verses, often these verses that are misused, are verses that you've just, you know, you have them quoted. They, they, sound, they sound really good to be applied in a particular context, so much so that you might have them on needlepoint, cross-stitch, this might be the reference that you put when you sign. You know, this is one of those habits that Christians have. You know, if we sign something, we sign a card, we put a, a, a verse reference, which is, which is fine. But Christians do this sort of thing. And this is the kind of verse that reference that people would put if they, if they sign. I've actually seen this a number of times. I haven't seen it from anybody here. If this is the verse you quote, if this is, you know, hanging up in your bathroom, if this is the, and you've got it out of context... Don't get ticked at me, all right? But Jeremiah 29, in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now, verse 11 is one of those verses, isn't it? The cross-stitch verse. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So, kid graduates from high school, Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, you're going into any particular venture, Jeremiah 29.11. What's the context of Jeremiah 29.11? Well, you should get a clue from the very first word. The very first word says, for. So that should give you a clue that there's a larger context here. For I have, or because I have plans for you. Well, because of what? So that should raise a question. Why is there a four there at the beginning? What's it connecting to? It's connecting to the verse that goes right before. So I've got plans to, to prosper you for good things and not to harm you. But what's the, the connection? Well, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For, because I've got plans for you. So what's the context of this? Here's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, as he is known. And one of the reasons that Jeremiah is weeping is because God's people have been taken into captivity in Babylon. Babylon. But God in His grace says there's going to be a limit to how long you're going to be in captivity. It's going to be 70 years. God could make it as long as He wants, but He says there's going to be an end to this, and it will end at 70 years. And the reason it will end at 70 years... I, God, am saying to you through the prophet Jeremiah, Israel, my people, who are in captivity, I'm saying to you that I have plans for you, that you have a future. It may not look like it. You're there in Babylon. You're in captivity. But you do. 
And, and so this is, this is my promise to you. Now, another clue that verse 11 should not be isolated all by itself is not only that it starts with the word for, but also because it's buried within a paragraph. Now, if you have an NIV, New International Version, then there's a paragraph that starts in verse 10 and goes through verse 14. Do you all see that? And this is why I recommend, whether you use the NIV or the English Standard Version or whatever version you choose to use, we use in our preaching and teaching here the, the NIV because it's, it's an accurate translation and easy to read, but there are others. But the reason, whatever you use, I recommend you use one that is laid out in paragraph form. Because some translations are not laid out in paragraph form. Every verse looks like a paragraph. And this is what lends itself to people atomizing the Bible. A-T-O-M. Atom. That is, taking a verse, the smallest, the small unit of communication, and separating it from everything else. Because when you read it, it looks like every verse is its own saying, to be needle-pointed. But of course it's not. Each of those verses, each of those sentences is within a larger context. And paragraphs are designed to communicate a complete thought. And so each of the paragraphs then is telling you a particular thing that contributes to the overall thing that's being communicated in the, in the book that it's contained in. So start with paragraphs. In fact, I say to the class on Wednesday night, learn to think paragraphs. Most often when I preach a message, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but most often the passage and the parameters of where we start and where we end are most often a, a paragraph. And that's because that contains a complete thought. What I'm trying to do is get the thought of that paragraph and then try to communicate it to, to us. So instead of just taking one verse, we take the verses that are part of that, part of that paragraph. Okay? So if you want to quote Jeremiah 29.11, you know, get carted off somewhere in captivity. And this all applied directly to you. Now, are there passages in Scripture that teach that God has our back? <laughs> that God is looking out for us? That God's in control of all things and ultimately it's going to turn out well for His people? Absolutely. But Jeremiah 29, 11 is a specific context and we should not fall into the trap of becoming prosperity preachers and teachers. You guys know what I mean by that? There's a thing called the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a dangerous gospel. It's not the gospel. But it is preachers on TV that have huge churches and huge ministries that are telling people God wants you healthy and wealthy. And God wants to prosper you, and He wants to prosper you in the here and now. And they'll use passages like this out of context. But does God look after His people? And will God's people ultimately be not only fine, they'll, they'll rule and reign in His kingdom? Absolutely. But in the meantime, it may not look so prosperous for us. So we got to be careful we don't become prosperity types because the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, let me give you then, in that connection, another passage, very famous, but that can be misquoted, misused. Romans 8 in verse 28. And most of you, some of you, don't even need to turn there. You know that verse. Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. So we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. So, statement of Scripture, promise of Scripture, New Testament written to you, to me. When does this good, all this good stuff happen? What does that passage tell us about when the good happens? That God works all of this for good. Is that a promise that it's going to all be good with you, this side of heaven? That you'll prosper and it'll all be good this side of heaven? The answer is no. And how do we know it's no? Because the paragraph gives us the, gives us the explanation of this good that God is working. Now, we'll look at the next two verses, verses 29 and 30, to see this good that God is, is working. But before we do, I just want to point something out that I always kick whenever I look at uh, Romans 8. And that is, what is Anthony Sauter doing? That's what I want to know. <laughs> hey, man. You know, you were... You were you were pretty discreet there, man. I don't know how anybody saw you. <laughs> Once everybody's looking, I might as well just call attention to it, all right, and get it, and get it over with. But in Romans eight twenty eight, in the NIV, it says, and we know that God works all things together for good. In the King James, it says, and we know all things work together for good. Well, God works all things together or all things work together for good. And the proper way to interpret that is what you see in the NIV. God works all things. You see, all things don't just work. Things don't work by themselves. There's a God who works them. And God is actively working in all things for this ultimate good of verse 28. But how do we know that, indeed, in the midst of difficulty, God's ultimately working all things together for good. Well, here's how. Because, verse 29. For, because. Here's how we know that. Those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, because, here's God's purpose for saving you. And His purpose for saving you is this, that Jesus might be the firstborn, that is the preeminent one, among many brothers and sisters who look like Him, who have become like Him, that God's purpose in salvation is for us to become like Christ. And in having this family of people, we don't have time now, but Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, speaks of Christ not being ashamed to call them brothers. And the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy Hebrews 2 says, are of the same family. We've been adopted into God's family, but in that family, Jesus is the preeminent one, the firstborn. And we are all predestined by God to be like Jesus. And it's to that end that God, in verse 28, is working all things together for good. For, because, here's His purpose, that you're going to become like Jesus so that Jesus is the preeminent one in the congregation of His family. And then it goes on, Verse 30, and 
Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Here's how you know that all things ultimately work together for good. Because here's God's ultimate goal, to conform us to the image of Christ. And God finishes what he starts. And what God started, he started in eternity past. He predestined. And then in time, in your life and in my life, there was a point in time when he called. He called you out of the world and to himself. And when he called you out of the world and to himself and you believed through faith and repentance in the gospel message, he justified you. You were declared, that's what justified means, you were declared righteous before God because of the righteous, perfect life of Jesus. He predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and then he does a fourth thing, and here's the, here's the real clincher. Those that he did all that with, predestined, called, justified, he also glorified. And glorified, just like the other three, is written in the past tense, even though it is not done yet. And the other three are. Predestined happened a long time ago. Called happened in the past. Justified happened in the past. Glorified hasn't happened yet, yet it's written as if it's as good as done. Because God finishes what he starts. And that's how you know God is working in all things for our ultimate good. And what is that ultimate good? That you will be conformed to the image of Jesus when one day you absolutely will be glorified. And there are no exceptions to that. That chain in verse 30, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, is an absolute chain. Do you you guys see that there? Those he did this with, he also did that with. Those he did this with, he also did. That's the way the chain goes. So none of them gets lost. All of them that God has determined, I'm going to, I'm going to have them hear the gospel message and call them by my spirit out of the world and to myself. I'll call them, and as a result of their responding to that, they will be justified. Those people absolutely will be glorified. So if anyone were to come and tell you, you can lose your salvation, they would be wrong about that, correct? According to Romans 8.30, they're absolutely wrong. This is an unbreakable chain. And that's the good that God is accomplishing. Now, so it doesn't mean there won't be bad stuff, maybe even really bad stuff, that happens to you and me this side of heaven. And how do I know that? Because chapter 8 goes on to talk about us not being separated from the love of God. And notice beginning in verse 37. Go to, go to verse 35. <clears throat> verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things, though, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present nor future, nor any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice all of these things, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, all that stuff may happen. But God has predetermined to work all things, including all those things, together for our Christ-likeness. So that verse cannot be used, like any of these verses, in isolation. Hebrews 11, don't don't need to turn there now, but in connection with this, 
bad stuff happening to God's people. How in heaven's name, in 2014, we think that we are the exceptions to the rule in the history of God's people. That somehow, all of a sudden, it's all prosperity now, and it's all good, and it's health and wealth. When, in fact, people better than you and me had to go through all kinds of suffering as God's people. And Hebrews chapter 11 records that. You guys know what Hebrews 11 is, many of you. Faith's Hall of Fame. And it just mentions one person after another, heroes of the faith, who walked with God. And look at how many of them had difficulties in their life. And you get to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, and it just catalogs, the writer of Hebrews just says, and there are so many more that I don't have time and space to to mention. But they were destitute of food. That's what it says at the end of Hebrews 11. Destitute of food. Some of them lived in caves and holes in the ground. That's what it says. Some of them were sawn asunder. That is, torn in two. Okay? That's what it says. These are, this is faith's hall of fame. And yet your TV preacher is all health and wealth? And you're supposed to be all health and wealth? All right. Philippians 4 and verse 13. Philippians 4. So, Lord, we got a big soccer match coming up. I got a big interview. I got some big thing I got to do. And this is what your friends will tell you. Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, we, everything like every word has to be defined in the context in which it's used. I mean, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. If divorced from its context, then if everything means literally everything that I set my hand to, yikes, look out. I'm, I'm jumping Royal Gorge with a bungee cord. And the next time, no bungee cord, because I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Well, what is the context of the everything that God gives you the strength to do? You guys see that that's the end of a paragraph? And the paragraph begins in verse 10. And verse 10 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. What's the context of the everything that he gives me strength to do? To face the circumstances that he puts on my agenda, that he brings into my life. Not what we say. I create the circumstances of my agenda, and then I present them to the Lord, and then I say, Lord, give me the strength to do this thing that I've decided to do. 
God gives us the strength to do the things that He places in our lives, that He calls us to do. And if He calls us to do it, He gives us the strength to perform it. And that's a promise then of Almighty God. All right, I've got three minutes left. I've got two more verses, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, You guys get the idea that the Bible is God's Word to us, but it is only effective as God's Word to us as we use it as it was intended. You know, a lot of products come with a direction that says, or an instruction that says, use only as what? And we've got to use the Bible as directed. And if we don't use it as directed, then we misuse the Bible. If we're going to be Bible people, let's put it in context and let's use it accordingly. Let's ask God to go with us. Let me remind you, those who are members of our church, this afternoon at 2.30, right here, we have our quarterly family meeting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and the opportunity to be with your people and to look into your word. Lord, your word is powerful, it's sharp, it's alive, and it cuts deep because it is penetrating, because it was written by the all-knowing God of the universe. And so even though you wrote it so long ago, you wrote it for me, you wrote it for us, and it can judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Thank you, Lord God, for the light and the lamp that is the Word of God. Help us to be people, then, who treasure it. Help us to be people who read it, people who study it, people who memorize it and quote it. But Help us, Lord, to use it as directed, and thereby benefit uh, from it as intended for us, and thereby use it for the benefit of others, that you use us as your ambassadors. Go with us, we ask you this week. Grant us safety until we meet next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.